Hey, I'm Pastor Robert. Welcome to Riverside Friends Church. Today we're going to continue our look at the book of Jeremiah. And one of the things I want to talk about and start with is, you know, out of all the Ten Commandments, the one that may be broken the most is the commandment that's been traditionally translated as, do not take the Lord's name in vain. And we hear it all the time, right? The GD and the JC, and we have even ways of saying those without saying them. We, we say, oh, gosh darn it. And this is the Midwest, so I say, oh, jeepers, cripes. I don't think that's blasphemy. I'm a pastor. I don't think it's blasphemy, except maybe on Sunday. Or is it? And so today I want to talk to you about the name of, the name of God, the name of the Lord, and how Israel has misused and abused the Lord's name. So if you want to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 14, uh, we're going to take a look at Jeremiah. We're going to continue this look. So Jeremiah chapter 14. And as you get there, I'm going to just kind of sum up. If you've missed some sermons or you missed last week, let's like kind of catch everything up. So in Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah is called as a prophet at a very young age, maybe about 12 or 14. And God calls him to tell the people how they have abandoned him for idols in Israel. And so the first 11 chapters of Jeremiah are full of oracles against idolatry. The people have abandoned God and they've gone after foreign gods. And Jeremiah, he preaches a couple of sermons against this to the people. And so last week, uh, Paul covered in Jeremiah 11 a plot against Jeremiah's, Jeremiah's life because of his message. And the language changes now, or I guess not now, in Jeremiah 11. The language changed from that of idolatry to that of broken covenant. And so today we'll see that a famine, a drought has hit the people of Judah. And there is a connection between the name of God and his covenant with his people and this famine. And we're going to explore all that. Let's start with Jeremiah 14, verses 1 to 6. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns and her gates languish. They lie in gloom on the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles and their servants for water send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns. They find no water. They return with their empty vessels. They are ashamed and dismayed and cover their heads because the ground is cracked. Because there has been no rain on the land, the farmers are dismayed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. The wild asses stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no herbage. Yeah, so we're going to continue to look at this. And so this idea of like a drought, right? A drought, they're very common, are very common experiences in the ancient Near East. Uh, and we see this all the time. Uh, throughout the Bible. In Israel, rain falls from October to May. The rain softens the ground and allows the plowing in the fields and the planting of most crops. And since Israel is situated along the Mediterranean Sea and because of its unique geography, it experiences two different climates. The north is primarily like this Mediterranean type climate, while the south is classic desert. And when there is like a strong and unified Israel that works together, the food production in the north sustains the populations in the south. Israel, though, in this time is not strong. And famine and droughts, they happen in the Bible. The text here in Jeremiah 14.1 begins, there's a famine, there's a drought. We don't know when this famine like, took place, when it occurred. We can guess 
And Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, it's not strictly chronological. It's not always told in order. And it's going to become really clear when we get into like chapters 25 to 36. And the best guess that we can give as to when this drought occurred is either the year 605 or 597-ish. So this is the time of the first deportation of the people from Israel under Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's coming, his army's coming to to ransack Jerusalem, and he's going to carry people off into slavery. So there's a common thread for famines and droughts throughout the whole Bible, and that is that God is working. God is working through famines and droughts. We can see this. Like, God moves Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at different times to different lands and places them in those specific places through a drought. Naomi meets her faithful daughter, Ruth, an extended great-grandmother of Jesus in the drought in Moab. And God uses famines and droughts for his goodness here in these stories. He furthers his kingdom and his desires in these things. But he also uses them when the people disobey. When Saul kills the Gibeonites after Joshua agreed to let them live, God brings a famine, which ends David, which David ends by uh, making restitution with the Gibeonites. King Ahab later on will worship Baal, and God brings a famine for three years during the time of Elijah. This is all part of the promise that God has given to the people in Deuteronomy 28. As a part of the covenant given at Sinai, between God and his people, he promises blessings for obedience and catastrophe for disobedience. And one of the catastrophes in Deuteronomy 28 is famine and drought. And so what I just did in the last like couple of minutes is I dropped a bunch of knowledge about history and Nebuchadnezzar, geography, the way that Israel is situated, anthropology, the way people think about their own histories, and theology, how God works. And so there's a bunch of stuff that I just hit on there. So let me like sum it up real fast for us. For the Israelite people, a drought is a historical time when God can move in big ways. And right now they are living in a terrible time. They are weak as a nation and a people. And the people, they see a connection between their current weakness, their current suffering, their current drought, and God's historical provision. And so let me, I want to like try to illustrate this in a way. And there's a joke that my brother and I would tell back and forth. That is, it's, for some reason it makes us laugh. It's not very good as a joke. But I'm going to tell it to you now and... You're going to see where I'm going. Just just go with me for a minute. It's not a good joke, but it made us laugh hysterically as boys. And it goes, this is how my brother tells it. He once upon a time, I ran over your puppy yesterday. Once upon a time, I ran over your puppy yesterday. It's not a good joke. It's not a good joke, but we would laugh hysterically at it. And I think like why we would laugh is that it juxtaposes. The joke hinges on the juxtaposition between once upon a time and yesterday. See, there's that which is like far off in the land of fairy tale where other people live in the once upon a time. And it's brought very near to you and I in the yesterday and in your puppy. And it's and that's why it works. And I think we can see this in our own lives, right? When bad things happen in other places, when the bad things that happen in other places 
to other people are brought home to us. Our hearts cry out, these things aren't supposed to happen here. And they certainly aren't supposed to happen to us. And we saw this a few weeks ago when Riley Sharper was tragically killed. God has done a tremendous work through this, though. Um, I talked with Kevin and Jill this week. He was at our men's Bible study Wednesday night. They are grieving, and yet God has strengthened their souls to glorify him. So they feel and know that God is at work here in this very real drought. So historically, like God uses the droughts and famines to bring about his purpose. And we can know that in our heads, but it's something else entirely when we get to experience the drought and famine in our own lives, when once upon a time becomes yesterday. And I think we can see this in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction as well. Famine and drought might be the biblical word describing rock bottom. And it's at rock bottom. It's at when the very real once upon a time becomes today for us. It's at rock bottom that people call upon the Lord. It's in the drought that the people call upon the Lord. So we're going to read on Jeremiah 14, 7 to 9. This is Israel now responding back to God. Although our iniquities testify against us, act O Lord, for your name's sake. Our rebellions indeed are many, and we have sinned against you. O hope of Israel, its Savior in times of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler turning aside for the night? Why should you be like someone confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot give help? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not forsake us. See, so the name of the Lord is prominent here. Twice, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. The name of the Lord is prominent here in Israel's response to the famine. They admit that their rebellions, their sins are many, and yet they ask God to act for his name's sake. God has tied his name to these people through his covenant at Sinai. The name Israel means one who wrestles with God. El is the word for God. And so to pray, for the sake of your name, would be to pray based on that covenant that God has made with his people. And they are praying based on the historical understanding of God's work to save. Judah here believes that God must deliver them to protect his reputation. They do something that we might do in times of drought, in times of really difficulties. They level some very harsh accusations against God. They're very condescending towards God. They act like he's a stranger in the land and he is confused. But they say, you are the Lord and you'll come to your senses and you'll help us. You know, when Sarah and I first got married, we knew that we were going to the mission field. That was God's call on our lives. And in some ways, we still like feel that, that pull to go. And I have some unbelievers in my side of the family that didn't understand that. They still don't. And they treated our desire to go to Cambodia as though we were just young and idealistic. They would speak condescendingly. Oh, that's nice. You'll grow out of it and come home and have lots of grandkids for your parents, grand nieces and nephews for me. And it was a way of really saying like, you don't know what's best. You're too young to really get it. 
And this is a common thing for young people, in particular young leaders. I still get that from people today. But what's happening here? Israel here is talking to God as though they are the all-knowing grandmother speaking to the idealistic child who needs to grow up and come to their senses. And there's an insanity here. There's an insanity here because they are talking to God. It's like if I came into your house and asked, why are you a stranger here in your own home? Like what? Who's the stranger? It makes no sense. But to the owner of the land, they say, why are you like a stranger here? To the caretaker of the land, they say, why are you like a traveler turning aside? To the all-knowing, they say, why are you confused? To the protector, they say, why aren't you helping? And after insulting God four times, they, they have the audacity to claim, this is Jeremiah 14, 9, yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not forsake us. Why is God a stranger to Israel? Because in his house, Israel has ignored him. He is a stranger because they have turned from him. Now they think they can call on his name for help. They have abandoned God, and now they want to call on him. And here's how God responds. Jeremiah 14, 10 to 12. Thus says the Lord concerning this people, Truly, they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. And the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Although they fast, I do not hear their cry. Although they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I do not accept them. But by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, I consume them. This is a harsh word. Do not pray for their welfare. In this time of drought and famine, do not pray for them. I don't accept their offerings. Notice God saying the words sword and famine are coming to consume them. So God has not been known by them. And now they're crying out to him and God's going, wait a minute. Is this how it is? God has this word about sword and famine. Check out what Jeremiah notices. Next verse, Jeremiah 14, 13. Then I, Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord God, here are the prophets saying to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you true peace in this place. So what's happening is that there are prophets in this famine saying, God is telling me you won't see sword or suffer famine, but you will have lasting peace here. And that's a bold claim. That's a bold claim to tell people in their current hunger is not from, is not from the famine or the drought. What they're doing is they're using the name of God to placate the people. As we alluded to earlier, one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 7, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Catch that. We will not, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. This is not how we've been traditionally taught or translated this verse, where we'd say, take the Lord's name in vain. We need to talk about this commandment. We teach little children not to swear or use the Lord's name in vain, and we have a very specific definition that we talked about in the intro. So we say, don't say Jesus Christ when a bad thing happens. Don't say, God dang it. And when we say these things, we are abusing God's name. And to be fair, we shouldn't abuse God's name. 
But this commandment goes far beyond what is generally taught. If we think about there's a way of abusing God's name, and it's this narrow. There's a way of misusing God's name, which is much more narrow. We tend to teach only this narrow definition when the, when the Bible is like, it's this wide. So we've confused this commandment by teaching, don't abuse God's name, when the text is, don't misuse it. We've confused abuse and misuse. And Jeremiah points out to God that these people are misusing his name by saying, the Lord has told me that you won't suffer the sword or famine, but you'll have lasting peace. They've misused the name of God. Jeremiah 14, 14 to 16, the next two, three verses say, and the Lord said to me, this is to Jeremiah, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, though I did not send them, and who say sword and famine shall not come on this land, by sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword. There shall be no one to bury them, themselves, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for I will pour out their wickedness upon them. The commandment from God is, don't misuse my name. And what have these false prophets done? They've applied God's name to something that he is not doing. They have misused the name of God. This is how the commandment's broken. It's not just in those swears that we make, but it's in applying God's name to something that he's not in. Today, people break the commandment of God not only by cursing the name of Jesus Christ, but by applying God's name to a work that he is not doing. Think about it like this. Like if I have a friend in active addiction and he is still using all the time, this is an extreme example. He's using all the time. The police are at his house every week because he fights with his girlfriend. He can't pass a drug test for drug court. And imagine that I say to him, my brother, you're doing fine. God is good. Amen. You must not worry for the Lord is with you. He will provide a way for you. What is the result? of my using God's name in this way. My friend will continue in his ways and he will continue to hurt himself and those around him and God will not be known in his life. And when we misuse the name of God and we apply him to a situation where he's not at, people end up hurt and broken. There's an issue with cheap grace that promises easy recovery and forgiveness and it ignores the reality of grief that we must go through to experience the hope of God. Because I'm like denying the reality of pain that my friend is inflicting upon himself and others. And here in Jeremiah, the prophets tell a lie. Everything is fine and good. There will be no sword or famine. And God responds by saying, by sword and famine, you will die. Famine is here. The armies are coming. We cannot ignore a problem in hopes that it'll go away. Instead, we must, it must be faced head-on with grief and shame and sorrow. And so God tells Jeremiah, these are the next set of verses, You shall say to them this word, Let my eyes run down with tears day and night, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people is struck with a crushing blow, with a very grievous wound. If I go out into the field, look, those killed by the sword. And if I enter into the city, look, those sick with famine. 
for both prophet and priest ply their trade throughout the land and have no knowledge. So if we go about ignoring problems and hope that they will just go away, if we hype easy peace without the pain of recovery, we are like prophets and priests who ply their trade with no knowledge. We set up people to be consumed by the very things we tell them to ignore. We misuse the name of God. Israel is in a bleak situation. The enemies are coming. Nebuchadnezzar's army is coming. The gates will not hold them. The famine is real. People are hungry. And now the prophets and priests, they say, all is well. This is a recurring theme of Jeremiah. The religious leaders help the government leaders propagate a lie that all will be okay because we're God's chosen people. And yet God says, those very things that you cover up will be what kills you. This is the issue with religious leaders that perpetuate lies. They lead the people to whom they are entrusted to death. The priests and the prophets, by putting forward lies of apathy, that there is no sword, there is no famine. They won't see the sword that kills the people in the country, the famine that will kill the people in the city. The lives of the religious leaders, they wreak carnage on the people. Religious people and leaders are really good at taking God and applying him to what we want to do. I am a master at cherry-picking verses to say just the right thing that proves my point. It's not healthy. It's a misuse of the Lord's name. We did 10 sermons last year on this exact topic in a series of church called Tove. Those are still available on our website. I'm not going to go further down that line of thinking right now, but for now, let's apply these verses to our lives today. Because the whole Bible speaks to us today. And we have to see ourselves in this story. And frankly, the easy way to see ourselves in this story is to see ourselves as Jeremiah. We can see ourselves as Jeremiah speaking the word of God against a dominant cultural narrative that believes a lie. And that's the easy way to see ourselves. Whether or not we're doing that or not, I don't know. But that's the easy way. But I'm not here to offer you an easy way. I'm here to challenge and speak prophetically. We are not Jeremiah. We are not God. We are the church. The phrase here, the prophets and priests ply knowledge with by trade with no knowledge may better be translated as they go to a land they know not. The church today can feel like we are living in a world that we don't know. We, we, don't, we, we don't know how to navigate pluralism and technology, and we've been slow to respond to those. And there are lies that we've believed and put forward about God and his church and our future. That everything will be fine as 100 churches close a week. There are lies that we've believed and put forward about God and his church in our future. What do we do with these, those lies? And where does this leave us? We've seen that there's a very real famine. People are starving. They're not just starving for food. They're starving for the word. And God has used the famines in history to provide a way for his, people, for his purpose and his people. And the people, though, they have been so unfaithful. Israel has been so unfaithful that Jeremiah can no longer pray for them. They misuse the name of God and claim the benefits of God without following the law of God. 
And in their misuse of the name of God, they try to cover up the very things that threaten their existence. Those things in a cause and effect way will destroy them. And God tells them through Jeremiah to cry tears that will not cease. See, the beginning of hope is found in grief and the, the admitting that I have a problem that I cannot contain. Let's jump ahead to Jesus. Matthew 23, 37 to 39 says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. See, the beginning is grief and recognition that we've misused the name of the Lord in trying to deal with our problems. And in our grief and in the problems that are too big for us to manage, we won't see God until we cry out to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That would be my challenge for you. What are those lies that you've believed? What are those ways, those things that you would rather cover up and not deal with that you would rather believe don't exist? What are those things that you overlook in your day-to-day life? How can you begin to grieve those and recognize how God wants to handle those and deal with those in your own life? How can you cry out to the one who comes in the name of the Lord? Pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word, thankful for your name, for your son, Jesus. Lord, would you help us to cry out to him who comes in your name, who bears your name, who in every way bears our sins. Lord, would you just help us to expose those parts of our lives that are so deeply rooted, but they're rooted not in truth or reality, but they're rooted in the misuse of your name. Lord, would you just open our eyes to those realities around us? We ask this in your name.